Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. And uh, as always, if I don't know you, I'd love to get to know you. And it's a joy to be with you this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I know we have some there at the table in the back. Feel free to take one. Uh, And today we're going to continue in our series in the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. So in approximately 180 AD. Oh, hold it. Close to my face. Got it. Better? Sorry. Thank you. All right. And if I forget during the sermon, just do something like this or this, and I'll try to remember. All right. <clears throat> so in approximately 180 AD, an early church father named Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies. In this book, he cataloged various teachings that had become popular in the church at that time uh, that were uh, false. There was Marcionism, the complete denial of the Old Testament. But his main opponent was something called Gnosticism. This idea that there had been a secret knowledge sort of handed down from the apostles, uh, unwritten uh, and orally uh, put forward. But it was being, uh, uh, and there's, uh, uh, this idea is that it's being suppressed, right? And of course, modern scholars eat this stuff up. That's why you have uh, things like the Da Vinci Code get really famous because it's nice conspiracy theory about the early church. But at the heart of many of these heresies was this question of authority, The idea of who gets to speak for the church. So one of Irenaeus' main arguments was something called apostolic succession. See, Irenaeus had been discipled by someone named Polycarp. Polycarp lived from 70 AD to 155 AD. And in his early days, he had been discipled by the apostle John, who died in about roughly 99 AD. So Irenaeus says in book three of Against Heresies, he says, but Polycarp was not only instructed by the apostles themselves, but was appointed overseer of the church in Smyrna, who I also saw in my early youth, for he tarried on the earth a long time. When he was a very old man, he gloriously and most nobly suffered martyrdom and departed this life, having always taught the things which he learned from the apostles and which the church has handed down and which alone are true. So against this notion of a secret, orally transcribed, uh, orally passed down knowledge that was uh, separate from the written scriptures, Irenaeus said, look, if anyone would have received such knowledge, it would be me, right? I can trace back that I was taught by the person who was taught by John, and thus I would have had this. But he's saying there's no conspiracy. We're just trying to teach what the apostles taught. That's why certain criteria were involved and developed for which Books are biblical, right? It had to be written by an apostle or someone very close to an apostle. So early on, authority in the church was in the hands of those who taught the things the apostles or disciples taught. Now, why am I bringing this up here? It's because this question of authority in God's kingdom runs throughout this entire chapter, whether it's Jesus' warnings about Pharisees and Sadducees or his pronouncement to Peter. These passages have long been instrumental in helping shape how the church thinks about Uh, church authority, and right teaching, even if these passages haven't always been interpreted well. 
So let's dive in. We're going to look at first these first four verses of Matthew 16. It says this, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And here we see we don't need a sign. Jesus is enough. In this passage, we have Pharisees and Sadducees. We saw some Pharisees last week, if you recall, and their defining feature is often legalism. Legalism, by the way, is not uh, the same thing as trying to eagerly live a godly life. Rather, legalism is adding laws to those God has given and making those the standard for holiness. I know a fairly easy example in many Christian circles is something like alcohol, right? So if I decide, for example, that in order to avoid the sin of drunkenness, I'm never going to have alcohol, that's fine. I can choose to do that if I want to. But then when I start telling others that in order to be holy, you must completely avoid this, well, that would be pharisaical, right? I'm putting up a new standard for holiness that is not what the scriptures command. I've become pharisaical. It's adding to God's commands. And this is what the Pharisees did. If you remember last week, Jesus asked them, why do you uphold your traditions over the commands of God? They had set up extra laws and held people to that standard. Thus, they laid on heavy burdens and were often uh, rebuked by Jesus for this. But who were these Sadducees? They were another group of Jewish teachers. And if to use what I'll admit are kind of modern, imperfect terms, if we might call the Pharisees overly conservative, the Sadducees would have been much more liberal. There are a few defining features. First, and importantly, they deny the resurrection of the dead. I'll never forget being a little kid in Sunday school and hearing the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, it's corny, but it has stuck with me for like 25 years. So they denied some of the Old Testament, and they denied the resurrection from the dead. It's also of note that they, more so than other Jewish teachers, had uh, made peace with the Romans. They had uh, made peace with the Roman invading uh, troops, Roman government. And so this was controversial, right? The Romans had come in and were uh, overseeing and ruling uh, the Jews. And so to many Jews, they were the enemy. And these teachers, uh, having denied some of the Old Testament, were making friends with the, the Roman overlords, so to speak. So ultimately, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not friends, Often we read the New Testament and think, okay, Jesus' opponents, Pharisees and Sadducees, right? They must have been uh, good buddies. But no, they were actually uh, enemies. They debated each other. They don't work together. Therefore, the reality of them coming together to confront Jesus speaks to the threat that he posed. Seemingly, the only thing here that they have in common is their opposition to Jesus. They don't want to come together and work together. But against Jesus, or to confront Jesus, they will. So they come to Jesus asking for a sign. They want a sign from heaven. Which, interestingly, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus then explains the signs that they do have, that they can read, right? If they look to the heavens, they can understand the sky and the weather. 
remember my, my father was in the Navy, and so I remember growing up and hearing the phrase, uh, you know, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning, red sky at night, sailor's delight. But think for a moment. How do you know what the weather is going to be like later today or tomorrow? I suspect for most of us we have an app on our phone or some sort of radar or something like that. It's fairly easy, right? But back then, and even for those uh, sort of on the front lines of this today, it, it takes some ability, ability to discern what you're looking at, right? Yet these, uh, these Pharisees and Sadducees could clearly look to the sky and discern what the weather was going to be like. They have the ability to look up and see this. But Jesus is saying, look, you know how to interpret the sky, but why can't you interpret the signs of the times? And he tells them, a wicked and adulterous generation wants a sign, but none will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. So why does he say this? Well, think about what the Pharisees and Sadducees were, right? They were teachers of the Jewish people. They, of all people, should have been able to look at the Old Testament and see that it points to Jesus. He's saying, you guys want a sign? You guys, the ones who are experts in this law. You guys, the one who should know what the Old Testament is talking about. Like, what have I been doing for these last 10 chapters, right? Jesus has been healing the sick. He's been teaching them. He has been opening the eyes of the blind, quoting scripture after scripture, prophecy after prophecy. It's like Jesus is thinking, give me a break. You guys want a sign? Look around. Just look in those books. You're supposed to be the experts of this Old Testament. Look there, and you will see all that you need. He specifically mentions Jonah, which is in many ways, right, a foreshadowing of his death and resurrection. Three days of Jonah in the, the fish, three days in the grave. Jesus has already explained this to some Pharisees back in chapter 12, so he doesn't go into details about what the sign of Jonah means here. But the idea, both for the Pharisees and Sadducees then, and for us today, is that God has revealed himself in his word, right? He has revealed himself in the scriptures, told us who he is uh, and, and what he has come to do for us. We don't need more signs. We need to trust that what he says is true. And before I move on, I think it's helpful to say, in the New Testament, we have examples of Pharisees actually doing this. There's Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who later uh, becomes a follower of Christ. There's, of course, Paul, who was a well-educated Pharisee, who wrote almost half the New Testament. And he's constantly drawing on, right, the Old Testament scriptures that he was, he was uh, schooled in to demonstrate that these point to Jesus Christ. Thus, the, the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, show us the fulfillment in Jesus. His ministry, his life, and of course, his death and resurrection. That's the sign that they had. They walked alongside him. They saw his, his miracles, his healings, his teachings. And the record of that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is what we have today. We don't need a sign. We have Jesus. With that said, let's look at verses 5 through 12. When, Jesus, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? 
or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he wants them to beware of false teachings. Beware of those who falsely set themselves up as an authority. I think it's worth noting that at the very end of the preceding chapter, Jesus has fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. So very recently, in the past two chapters, we've seen him feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. We've seen him feed 4,000. And so you can't help but laugh a little bit at the beginning of these verses, right? The disciples forgot bread. Again, apparently. And, uh, and as soon as they hear Jesus say the word leaven, it's like they forget everything that he's, he's trying to tell them, and instead they think, here we go again. Who was supposed to bring the bread? Why do we keep running into the situation where we don't have enough bread? How many times are we going to have to rely on Jesus' miracles to bail us out? Uh, and they discuss amongst themselves that once again, they've forgotten bread. Thankfully, uh, Jesus sets them straight, right? This might be a Bread is obviously a touchy subject for the disciples, but Jesus tells them, uh, look, first of all, who cares that you forgot bread? Have I not proven time and again that I am capable of feeding uh, these, these multitudes? So, so stop worrying about bread. Stop arguing amongst yourselves about bread. Instead, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He tells them to beware, to be on guard. Jesus isn't talking about physical bread. No, he's talking about leaven or sort of the spread of false teaching. So what were Pharisees and Sadducees teaching? Well, both in their own way were denying the authority of the Lord. They were against Jesus' teachings. To put it succinctly, the Pharisees denied it by adding to it and setting up extra rules. The Sadducees denied it by taking from it. And that might be a little bit oversimplified, but I think we see it still today. We see those two tendencies. Regarding Pharisaical teaching, we'll get in in just a moment later in this chapter into the history of, uh, not too much into the history, but some of the Catholicism and the way Catholicism, uh, sort of by setting up the Pope, set up a very sort of Pharisaical way of of church governance. But unfortunately, uh, this has always been a tendency within the church from the beginning. I don't know if you remember when we went through the book of Galatians. This was a topic almost every chapter. And this just hasn't stopped. Recently, Elise and I watched an Amazon documentary. We had uh, spoken, some various members of the church had brought it up to us. It's a documentary about um, this family in the States and about uh, some of the teachings that they were under. And it was just a reminder that even now, it was was genuinely painful and frustrating to watch. But at its heart, it brought out the way pharisaical teachings are alive and well today in many Protestant churches. In this documentary, there were parenting and family gurus promising that you will stay holy through the implementation of rigorous extra-biblical rules. Only by following those rules can you guarantee holiness. And in so doing, of course, these teachers would set themselves up as the highest authority, an unquestionable authority. And any human authority that sets itself up as unquestionable will lead to abuse and mistreatment. The tendency towards pharisaical teaching and authority is still here and it must be resisted. Adding commands onto God's word is wrong. But that's not the only thing we see today. We also should be aware of the sort of things the Sadducees were teaching. Beware of those who would deny scripture. 
who deny the authority of God and his word. What encapsulates so much of what the Sadducees were teaching and doing was a capitulation to the world, right? They capitulated to Roman rulers. They were afraid to stand up for the truth. They didn't want to hold beliefs that might seem weird or, you know, we don't want to believe in resurrection from the dead because then the, the Romans won't respect us and think we're really smart. And can we not find Christian leaders who will do just the same today? Christian leaders who would rather have the respect of the world than faithfulness to the scriptures? And this, too, is an ever-present temptation. So as Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. If history has taught us anything, it's that these two ways of thinking, adding to God's word to have extra rigorous, uh, extra rigorous rules, or denying teachings of the Lord for the, for the applause of the world, are both ever-present temptations for us. At the beginning, I brought up uh, this idea of authority in the church. So what does this section tell us? Well, both Pharisees and Sadducees were in positions of teaching, right? And so what should we be, what should we be on guard against? It's those who would uh, not put God as our highest authority. And we know God through his word and through the scriptures. Again, no human being can be set up as a highest authority, right? We tell our children sometimes, like, you should listen to us. Like, Elise and I tell our children, you should obey, right? When you're back with the, in, in here, you should obey your teachers. But, of course, that's not absolute. If I tell my children to, you know, rob a bank or kill someone, right, they should disobey. That might be a little bit extreme. They're, like, five and three. So if, they, if, if I tell them what's more culturally acceptable, right? If I tell them, hey, you know what? At this restaurant, under five eats free, so tell them you're four, okay? Well, that might seem funny and culturally acceptable, right? But I'm encouraging my children to say something that's not true. They should disobey, right? My authority over them is not absolute. Works the same here at Renaissance, right? I hope and genuinely hope that ev no one ever feels like they can't question me, question Graham, question uh, any authority here, right? We're humans, and any and all uh, authority or teaching we have should be to lead to greater godliness, right? Greater Christ-likeness, greater holiness. Neither Graham nor myself, Dylan, any of the deacons, anyone has authority to lay extra burdens on you, to add extra rules to tell you, well, you must actually do this, this, and this as well to be holy. That's not to say that in the midst of discipleship we may recommend or advise things, right? For example, men, if you're struggling with lust, I would highly recommend that you come to the men's group on Tuesday nights. But I would never have the authority, nor would I say, that the only way for you to be holy in that area is to come on Tuesday nights, or the only way you can be a Christian is to come to that group. To say something like that would be to add to God's commands. Likewise, church, beware if you ever hear teachers who'd rather have the applause of the world than faithfulness to God's word. We certainly do and will in the future teach things here that might be unpopular in the world. Look, Christian sexual ethics have never ever been popular in the world. Sharing the gospel with your neighbor who doesn't want to hear it is never going to be a popular uh, thing to do or a popular stance to take. But our goal is faithfulness to Christ. So beware of false teachings. Beware of those who would set themselves up as authority and deny the authority of God, whether by adding to his commands or taking from them. Look to Christ and his scriptures. Now as we go forward to the next section, it's really one of the most debated passages in church history, remember what has come before. 
And I'm thinking come before in the big picture of the book of Matthew. If you've been with us, you, uh, it's important to remember that to this point in Jesus' ministry, he has not openly revealed his messianic identity. He's often told people, as he will at the end of this section, don't go tell anyone uh, uh, who I am, right? He points them back, just as he did earlier, to the Old Testament scriptures, showing how he has fulfilled them and says, look, if the, the shoe fits, right, that's me. So let's read verses 13 through 20. They say this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus here is building a church. He's building a church under his lordship and his authority, a church on a firm foundation, on a solid rock. He asks his disciples, who do they say I am, right? Who do the people out there say that I am? And he's given a few interesting, you know, understandable answers, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe Jeremiah. These maybe make sense. But then he says, who do you? That's a plural you. He's asking the disciples, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is in many ways a turning point in the book of Matthew. Many commentators, when they're sort of breaking this book down on a large scale, they say, look, there's the, the first section, Matthew 1, 1 through 4, 17. And in 4.17, you get, from that point on, Jesus went on. So we have his early life. Then from 4.17 through here, he's doing all this ministry, healing the sick, uh, you know, having the blind see, teaching, and in many ways, doing all of this until someone finally recognizes you are the Messiah. And now that Peter has said this, if we look down just briefly at 16.21, we get that same idea. From that time on, and while he'll still do some ministry and teaching in the chapters that come, it doesn't stop, we do see a very pointed effort for him to move towards Jerusalem where he's going to be uh, killed and rise from the grave. But let's look now at what Jesus says after Peter's confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, throughout church history, these verses have been the subject of much debate. Going off of what I said at the beginning regarding Irenaeus, later in the Catholic Church, they took this notion of apostolic succession, and they sort of plugged it in here to verse 18, into this idea of Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Uh, Peter then becomes the first pope, and Jesus gave authority to, to this first pope, and now the idea that every pope after Peter has this great authority sort of took root. To the point where, by the Middle Ages, even if the Pope was living, you know, sort of a wildly ungodly life, well, he was the Pope and he should be listened to. 
Now, maybe Catholics, I suspect, should have, uh, in this time, should have read the beginning of this chapter where it talked about beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, but uh, we see that this, this interpretation that really elevates Peter to a special place uh, might have been a bit misguided. Even if we take it that Peter is the rock on which he's going to build the church, uh, the whole ecclesiastical system that many Catholics built around that seems to go too far. So there's a few important points here about Jesus, Peter, and authority among his people. First and foremost, Jesus says, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. It was revealed to Peter by the Father. Peter is not in his flesh anything special. He did not confess Christ by his own genius, his own reasoning abilities, not with his own perfect uh, logical argumentation. No, it was revealed to him from above. It's a theme throughout Scripture, right? That God gives truth, right? God reveals himself. And in our flesh, we are weak and frail and depraved, and we need the work of God in our hearts and in our minds. And I think anyone tempted to raise Peter up too high from this text ought to remember what happens immediately after it. Verses 21 to 23 say this, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he tells him he's got to go and die. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now imagine for just a second, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and then like a few minutes later, but I need to rebuke you. Anyway, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you, right? Seems nice, right? He doesn't want Lord, to die. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yikes. Get behind me, Satan. And that's the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church, right? So I think it's better to understand the section as telling us that Jesus is going to build his church on this tr truth of Peter's confession, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Son of God the Father. Yes, Peter is a rock or cornerstone in a sort of foundational, maybe chronological sense. If we read through the book of Acts, the first bit of book of Acts is Peter often as sort of the, the leader among the apostles teaching, but we, of course, need the Lord to work in us. Peter's profession was revealed from above. And even here, as Peter uh, begins to hinder the Lord in his mission, he is even rebuked. Second, we see Jesus is building a church. He is building a church. He says, I will build my church. I, Jesus, will build it. He says he will build it, right? He's building. He's bringing people into his church. And he says, I will build my church. Not David's church. Not Graham's church. Not any of your church. It's Christ's church. And of course it is, like I said, a church, a people. Not a bunch of sort of lone rangers, but people committed together, loving one another, teaching one another, exhorting one another, when necessary, rebuking one another, showing hospitality to one another, and proclaiming the name of Jesus and honoring him with their life together. In a couple chapters, in chapter 18, we'll see Jesus expand on this idea of uh, what that community will look like. He gives commands for how Christians exist in their community and how they should uh, confront sin in their community. And in our culture, this idea of Jesus building a church, a community, we might be put off by that. That would involve commitments. It might involve some awkward interactions. It might involve some, uh, you know, dealing with others who we wouldn't normally deal with. That's part of how we grow. We don't grow by being off on our own. We might like to think we're very strong on our own, but we are not. And the good news, of course, is that this church, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
The gates of hell might prevail against other institutions, Christian schools, nonprofits, might prevail against big institutional ministries out there, but the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus, under his lordship and authority, is building a church. He is building his church. So what is our foundation, church? It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the one who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. His lordship is our foundation. If we believe that, like Peter, if we confess that with our lips, we are blessed. Because that's revealed to us, not by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. So Jesus is building his church on a solid foundation. Let's look at the last few verses of this, uh, of this chapter. Uh, I think verse 28 serves as a good transition to chapter 17. So let's go 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So in this church the Lord is building, how do we live? What is life like under the authority of Jesus? Well, if we follow him, we must be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross. Of course, in that day, the cross was an object used for crucifixion and follow Jesus. How do we find life? Do we seek to hold on to everything we have? Do we live in order to gain as much as possible? No. We find our life by giving it up to Jesus. We must be willing to forfeit the things of this world for the Lord. These verses are nothing new. If you've been with us in Matthew or at church for any length of time, you might have heard some of these things. But that doesn't make them any easier. That doesn't make them any less profound. Following Jesus is a denial of ourselves, our wants, desires, goals. And that never gets easier, in a sense. But there is an eternal reward. As it says, our souls get to be with their, our creator and redeemer forever. When the Lord comes again, those who have surrendered their lives to him will be saved. Let that be you today. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And as we begin to close, I just want to briefly go over some of the things we've discussed. We saw first we don't need a sign as we have Jesus, and he is enough. We have a record of his life, miracles, ministry, his teaching, and of course, his death and resurrection. We have the spirit-inspired revelation from God of Jesus' life and ministry. That in and of itself should be a sign for us. Next, beware of false teaching, right? Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of false authorities. Of course, given the, state, given the state of our culture, I think we could just spend hours talking about this. We won't, of course. But we're often told from one side that anyone who sets themselves up as a teacher or authority is bad and evil, and uh, that's just sort of a cover for abuse. Or we're told on the other side that this or that human authority must be obeyed absolutely. And biblically, though, God is our highest authority. Those in positions of, of, of teaching or authority on earth or in the church, or home, they are given this authority for the good of those under them, never for their own gain. It's wrong to set up extra unbiblical commands 
Teachers are not to weigh others down with this idea of Phariseeism, right? And I brought this up a bit earlier, and I usually tend to avoid these ideas of sort of Protestant versus Catholic stuff in, in sermons, but I do think it's a bit relevant here. See, I briefly earlier talked about this idea of papal authority that was, that was taken out of chapter 16, uh, verse 18, and was wielded for centuries by Catholic authorities, right? That you cannot question church teaching, even if it went above and beyond Scripture. But this is not just some ancient abstract idea. See, we are a Protestant gospel-preaching church in Quebec. And at least my experience here, and I think this is the same for some of you who have been here longer than I have, is if we bring up words like Jesus, church, Bible, to our Quebecois neighbors, they immediately think of legalism. They think of a sort of pharisaical understanding of the church. It's built into Quebec history, right? The quiet revolution. They turn their back on, on the church. My neighbors have told me that all the things that their parents went through at church. Being told that they are required to have a certain number of children. Being told that when they get to church, they have to sit in a certain area because they've committed whatever, you know, uh, conspicuous sin. All these extra rules that they eventually got tired of and left. And this is the kind of teaching that Jesus told us to be on guard against. So for to be faithful witness of, witnesses of the gospel in this place, we often must clarify that this is not what we preach. This is not what we declare. We are beholden to the scriptures. We don't wish to add burdens to anyone. Rather, we want to call all to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. It is then and only then, after repentance and putting their faith in Jesus, that there will be a, a desire to live a holy life according to the scriptures, not man-made laws. So we must be aware of this insidious, ever-present temptation towards pharisaical legalism. It's a denial of Christ's authority. Likewise, we should be aware of teachers and teachings that seek worldly approval. We must be aware of authorities that will deny or diminish the teaching of Christ. We can't follow those who would deny the things of God in order, in order to make God's message more palatable to modern ears. No, our highest authority is God. And how do we know what he wants? We know from his word. And finally, Jesus is building a church. This church is built upon the solid rock of Christ's lordship. And in this church, we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. We don't cling to our lives, to our personal goals, our desires, our hopes, our dreams. Rather, we cling to Jesus Christ in good times and bad. The church that Christ is building is a community of people who look to Jesus for their hope and joy. Today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, look to Jesus. You are trapped in sin, and I'm telling you, no amount of rigorous rule-keeping nor free, licentious living will ever bring you peace. No, faith in Jesus Christ can do that. Look to him, repent of your sins, and put your faith in him today. I'd be happy to talk to anyone more about that after the service. And church, let us go out confident, confident that Christ is still building his church today. We can go forth proclaiming the gospel, knowing that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is a truth worth giving your life for. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Let's be those who give it all up for he who is Lord, our highest authority, our highest teacher, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world. 